I have decided to record some of my adventures in these trying times when fire, flood and pestilence have wreaked such havoc on the lives of so many. My reasons are twofold. First, it is only natural that I should wish to continue the tradition established by my illustrious ancestor, the first Baron Munchausen, who wrote an account of his own travels in the late 18th century. Like him, I have circumnavigated the globe many times, had narrow scrapes with its wildlife, crossed its oceans and frozen wastes, and even ventured beyond its atmosphere into the nearer regions of our solar system. Like him, I have encountered presidents and potentates, peasants and professors, men and women of every rank and character. And it is therefore reasonable to suppose that the public may be entertained by my stories. But my second reason is perhaps more important. By describing my various triumphs over adversity, I intend to illustrate the great resilience of our species and to offer reassurance that just as no law decrees that virtue will always prosper or justice always prevail, nor is there one that obliges human beings always to walk in darkness, feeling the hand of doom upon their necks. I am an incurable optimist and wake every morning with the expectation that the coming day is as likely to bring happiness as it is to bring despair. Therefore, I present these reminiscences in the hope that they may bring a smile to the sorrowful face and cast a beam of light into even the gloomiest and most isolated of dens. While my ancestor, the first baron, gained a considerable reputation through his writings, it was not always the kind of reputation a gentleman might wish to have. He became the object of much ill-informed mockery when he published his memoirs more than two hundred years ago. Most regrettably, another writer, with no moral integrity whatsoever, commandeered his stories and so embellished them that it became impossible to disentangle the truth from the exaggerations. As a result, my esteemed family name has become a byword for tall tales and fibs. I therefore state, without equivocation, that every word here is my own, and furthermore, that it is the truth and nothing but the truth, and that I will defend myself to my last breath against anyone who might be tempted to impugn my honesty. My narrative opens a little less than a year ago, when I was visiting a dear old friend, the Countess of Shandwick, whose castle overlooks the Cromarty Firth in the north of Scotland. We were out for a long walk one afternoon, discussing the state of the world and especially the vexed issue of climate change. I mentioned that only the previous month I had met the young Swedish activist Greta Thunberg when she was crossing the Atlantic in a yacht from Plymouth to New York to attend a conference. By coincidence, I was travelling in the opposite direction, in a vessel of my own design, an armchair mounted on two surfboards, with one large and two small parachutes attached. Using a system of ropes and pulleys, I could manoeuvre these parachutes into any combination of positions I desired, thus maximising the amount of wind needed to propel me onward. I was going so fast that my modest little craft nearly collided with Miss Thunberg's yacht, 
which would have been embarrassing for both of us. However, no harm was done. We circled around each other, wished each other well in our endeavours, and went our respective ways. I arrived in Donegal Bay in Ireland three days later, having had leisure enough to do a spot of fishing and enjoy three of the novels of Victor Hugo, all from the comfort of my armchair. I travelled on to Scotland by more conventional means. The Countess of Shamwick remarked that she had been speaking to an old woman in a cottage on her estate, who thought that the accumulated effects of industrial pollution, plastic in the oceans, melting ice caps and so forth, amounted to nature giving the human race what she called a scalp. By this she meant a cuff to the head, such as teachers or policemen used to dish out to unruly children when such rough justice was considered normal. If we did not mend our ways, the old woman told the Countess, we would get a harder scalp, which we would like even less. And we agreed that our argument was a powerful one. Our walk took us past an ancient tranquil churchyard, within which lies a large flat stone known as the cholera stone. My friend told me that during an outbreak of that disease in 1831, a legend grew up amongst the terrified populace that it was floating about the country, just above the ground, in the form of a small yellow cloud. A brave man, equipped with a large linen sack, approached the cloud when it was at rest, and, deftly throwing his sack over it, captured it all. He quickly folded and pinned the sack to prevent the cloud escaping, and as he did this, the material gradually changed in colour from white to putrid yellow. He then interred the sack in the churchyard and placed a heavy stone on top of it, and that was the last of the cholera. But no new grave had been opened near that stone ever since. I was intrigued and said I would like to raise the stone to see what, if anything, lay beneath. The Countess became quite hysterical, imploring me not to do it, and in deference to her feelings and our friendship, I abandoned the idea. But only temporarily. I returned alone the next day, and making sure that there were no witnesses, I heaved the stone upright. Imagine my astonishment when I saw a very flattened, stiff and yellowish-brown piece of cloth embedded in the earth. Even more astonishingly, it began to move, rippling and stretching like a, a person waking from a long sleep, and rising slightly from its recumbent position. I always take the side of rationalism against superstition, but on this occasion was suddenly anxious to conclude my experiment at once. Unfortunately, when I let the stone drop, it fell awkwardly, leaving a corner of its original resting place exposed. The yellow sack flapped and bellowed its way out through this aperture, almost gleefully it seemed, and would have flown off had I not seized it. Convinced that the Countess would be furious if she discovered what I had done, I decided to dispose of the sack and its contents at a place I knew of some miles away, a deep chasm through which a river makes its progress to the sea. An unattended post office van was parked, with its engine running, just outside the churchyard. Presumably the driver was delivering to the properties nearby. Without a moment's hesitation, I threw the sack, which was becoming ever more boisterous, into the back of the van and drove off at speed. Twenty minutes later, I was standing at the edge of the aforementioned chasm. I realised that I could not just throw the sack in, but would have to descend and lodge it securely somewhere. 
How, though, was I to climb down the vertical, slippery cliff? I happened to be wearing a suit made of the very finest tweed, woven on a handloom manoeuvre in the kingdom of Fife. It grieved me to do what I then did, but first taking my penknife from a pocket, I took off the suit and cut it into very narrow strips, which I then knotted together. I soon had a length of rope some one hundred feet in length, and of such strength that I was willing to trust my life to it. I tied one end to the branch of a small but sturdy tree overhanging the chasm, and, with the sack on my shoulder, lowered myself down the dark, forbidding rock. Soon I was on a ledge near the bottom of the gorge. The water roared through in a raging torrent, but so long as I held on to my rope, I was safe. I saw a narrow fissure in the rock and thrust the sack deep inside it. With my free hand I managed to wedge a large loose stone into the fissure, and then used my penknife to scrape and pack other debris around it, so that it was quite impossible for the sack to escape its new prison. Very satisfied with my endeavours, I tugged on the rope to check that it was still attached to the tree before I began my ascent. Alas, the tweed was so strong that the tree was uprooted from its anchorage and flew past me into the river. I was so surprised that I forgot to let go of the rope, and a second later I was jerked from the ledge in pursuit of the tree. I just had time to take a deep breath before the water engulfed me. The fierce current rushed me through the gorge in seconds. I was ejected at the far end quite naked and at such a pace that I was flung high into the air, clutching my knife in one hand and the rope still attached to the tree in the other. Below me were a number of oil rigs moored in the cromity firth. Should I fall onto one of these I would undoubtedly be killed, but as I reached the apex of my trajectory a large flock of swans chanced to pass close by me. I reached out and climbed onto the back of one of these magnificent birds. The others drew closer to protect their companion from this unexpected assault. I swiftly constructed a shaft and harness from the tree and the tweed rope and tied the legs of eight swans to each side. I was then able to transfer myself from the bird which had hitherto borne my weight and sit astride my new aircraft. After a while, the swans grew unperturbed by my presence and settled into their usual flight rhythm en route to wherever was their destination. I felt the chill of evening coming on, so I plucked numerous plumes from the swans and with the aid of my knife fashioned myself a rather splendid pure white coat of interlocked feathers. When I put it on, the swans became even more accepting of me, as if I were one of them. We flew on through the night, passing across the face of the moon, their huge wings flapping in a most soothing manner, and their conversation a continuous cacophony of honks and hoots, from which I deduced that they were hooper swans. Being an excellent linguist, I was soon able to pick up the gist of the discussion, which concerned that very same scalp being administered to the human race, of which the Countess's tenant had spoken, and which the swans unanimously agreed we thoroughly deserved, I wished I could apologise for having taken advantage of them, but it is one thing to understand an avian language and quite another to speak it. 
I wish, too, that the Countess would forgive me for having departed so suddenly, and that the postal worker had not got into much trouble over their stolen van. Most of all, I wished that the journey would last for ever. It was the most pleasurable mode of transport I have ever experienced. But it came to an end the following day, in a manner that led to one of the most extraordinary encounters of my entire life. William Gallagher.